part one chapter ten of a key to uncle tom's cabin by harriet beecher stowe this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. read by michelle fry baton rouge louisiana chapter ten legree as st clair and the shelbys are the representatives of one class of masters so legree is the representative of another and as all good masters are not as enlightened as generous and as considerate as st clair and mr shelby or as careful and successful in religious training as mrs shelby so all bad masters do not unite the personal ugliness the coarseness and profaneness of legree legree is introduced not for the sake of vilifying masters as a class but for the sake of bringing to the minds of honorable southern men who are masters a very important feature in the system of slavery upon which perhaps they have never reflected it is this that no southern law requires any test of character from the man to whom the absolute power of master is granted in the second part of this book it will be shown that the legal power of the master amounts to an absolute despotism over body and soul and that there is no protection for the slave's life or limb his family relations his conscience nay more his eternal interests but the character of the master rev charles c jones of georgia in addressing masters tells them that they have the power to open the kingdom of heaven or to shut it to their slaves religious instruction of the negroes page one fifty eight and a south carolinian in a recent article in fraser's magazine apparently in a very serious spirit thus acknowledges the fact of this awful power Quote, yes we would have the whole south to feel that the soul of the slave is in some sense in the master's keeping and to be charged against him hereafter now it is respectfully submitted to men of this high class who are the lawmakers whether this awful power to bind and to loose to open and to shut the kingdom of heaven ought to be entrusted to every man in the community without any other qualification than that of property to buy let this gentleman of south carolina cast his eyes around the world let him travel for one week through any district of country either in the south or the north and ask himself how many of the men whom he meets are fit to be trusted with this power how many are fit to be trusted with their own souls much less with those of others now in all the theory of government as it is managed in our country just in proportion to the extent of power is the strictness with which qualification for the proper exercise of it is demanded the physician may not meddle with the body to prescribe for its ailments without a certificate that he is properly qualified the judge may not decide on the laws which relate to property without a long course of training and most abundant preparation it is only this office of master which contains the power to bind and to loose and to open and shut the kingdom of heaven and involves responsibility for the soul as well as the body that is thrown out to every hand and committed without inquiry to any man of any character 
a man may have made all his property by piracy upon the high seas as we have represented in the case of legree and there is no law whatever to prevent his investing that property in acquiring this absolute control over the souls and bodies of his fellow-beings to the half-maniac drunkard to the man notorious for hardness and cruelty to the man sunk entirely below public opinion to the bitter infidel and blasphemer the law confides this power just as freely as to the most honourable and religious man on earth and yet men who make and uphold these laws think they are guiltless before god because individually they do not perpetuate the wrongs which they allow others to perpetuate to the pirate legree the law gives a power which no man of woman born save one ever was good enough to exercise are there such men as legree let any one go into the low districts and dens of new york let them go into some of the lanes and alleys of london and will they not there see many legrees nay take the purest district of new england and let people cast about in their memory and see if there have not been men there hard coarse unfeeling brutal who if they had possessed the absolute power of legree would have used it in the same way and that there should be legrees in the southern states is only saying that human nature is the same there that it is everywhere the only difference is this that in free states legree is chained and restrained by law and in slave states the law makes him an absolute irresponsible despot it is a shocking task to confirm by fact this part of the writer's story one may well approach it in fear and trembling it is so mournful to think that man made in the image of god and by his human birth a brother of jesus christ can sink so low can do such things as the very soul shudders to contemplate and to think that the very man who thus sinks is our brother is capable like us of the renewal by the spirit of grace by which he might be created in the image of christ and be made equal unto the angels they who uphold the laws which grant this awful power have another heavy responsibility of which they little dream how many souls of masters have been ruined through it how has this absolute authority provoked and developed wickedness which otherwise might have been suppressed how many have stumbled into everlasting perdition over this stumbling stone of irresponsible power what facts do the judicial trials of slaveholding states occasionally develop what horrible records defile the pages of the law-book describing unheard-of scenes of torture and agony perpetrated in this nineteenth century of the christian era by the irresponsible despot who owns the body and soul let any one read if they can the ninety-third page of wells slavery as it is where the rev mr dickey gives an account of a trial in kentucky for a deed of butchery and blood too repulsive to humanity to be here described the culprit was convicted and sentenced to death mr dickey's account of the finale is thus quote, the court sat isham was judged to be guilty of a capital crime in the affair of george he was to be hanged at salem the day was set my good old father visited him in the prison two or three times talked and prayed with him i visited him once myself we fondly hoped that he was a sincere penitent 
before the day of execution came by some means i never knew what isham was missing about two years after we learned that he had gone down to natchez and had married a lady of some refinement and piety i saw her letters to his sisters who were worthy members of the church of which i was pastor the last letter told of his death he was in jackson's army and fell in the famous battle of new orleans i am sir your friend william dickey but the reader will have too much reason to know of the possibility of the existence of such men as legree when he comes to read the records of the trials and judicial decisions in part two let not the southern country be taunted as the only country in the world which produces such men let us in sorrow and in humility concede that such men are found everywhere but let not the southern country deny the awful charge that she invests such men with absolute irresponsible power over both the body and the soul with regard to that atrocious system of working up the human being in a given time on which legree is represented as conducting his plantation there is unfortunately too much reason to know that it has been practised and is still practised in mr weld's book slavery as it is under the head of labor page thirty nine are given several extracts from various documents to show that this system has been pursued on some plantations to such an extent as to shorten life and to prevent the increase of the slave population so that unless annually renewed it would of itself die out of these documents we quote the following the agricultural society of baton rouge louisiana in its report published in eighteen twenty nine furnishes a labored estimate of the amount of expenditure necessarily incurred in conducting a well-regulated sugar estate in this estimate the annual net loss of slaves over and above the supply by propagation is set down at two and a half per cent the late hon josiah s johnson a member of congress from louisiana addressed a letter to the secretary of the united states treasury in eighteen thirty containing a similar estimate apparently made with great care and going into minute details many items in this estimate differ from the preceding but the estimate of the annual decrease of the slaves on the plantation was the same two and a half per cent in september the writer of this had an interview with james g burney esq who then resided in kentucky having removed with his family from alabama the year before a few hours before that interview and on the morning of the same day mr b had spent a couple of hours with hon henry clay at his residence near lexington mr burney remarked that mr clay had just told him he had lately been led to mistrust certain estimates as to the increase of the slave population in the far southwest estimates which he had presented i think in a speech before the colonization society he now believed that the births among the slaves in that quarter were not equal to the deaths and that of course the slave population independent of immigration from the slave-selling states was not sustaining itself among other facts stated by mr clay was the following which we copy verbatim from the original memorandum made at the time by mr burney with which he has kindly furnished us 
september sixteenth eighteen thirty four honorable h clay in a conversation at his own house on the subject of slavery informed me that honorable outerbridge horsey formerly a senator in congress from the state of delaware and the owner of a sugar plantation in louisiana declared to him that his overseer worked his hands so closely that one of the women brought forth a child whilst engaged in the labors of the field also that a few years since he was at a brickyard in the environs of new orleans in which one hundred hands were employed among them were from twenty to thirty young women in the prime of life he was told by the proprietor that there had not been a child born among them for the last two or three years although they all had husbands the late mr samuel blackwell a highly respected citizen of jersey city opposite the city of new york and a member of the presbyterian church visited many of the sugar plantations in louisiana a few years since and having for many years been the owner of an extensive sugar refinery in england and subsequently in this country he had not only every facility afforded him by the planters for personal inspection of all parts of the process of sugar-making but received from them the most unreserved communications as to their management of their slaves mr b after his return frequently made the following statement to gentlemen of his acquaintance quote, that the planters generally declared to him that they were obliged so to overwork their slaves during the sugar-making season from eight to ten weeks as to use them up in seven or eight years for said they after the process is commenced it must be pushed without cessation night and day and we cannot afford to keep a sufficient number of slaves to do the extra work at the time of sugar-making as we could not profitably employ them the rest of the year dr deming a gentleman of high respectability residing in ashland richland county ohio stated to professor wright of new york city that during a recent tour at the south while ascending the ohio river on the steamboat fame he had an opportunity of conversing with mr dickinson a resident of pittsburgh in company with a number of cotton planters and slave dealers from louisiana alabama and mississippi mr dickinson stated as a fact that the sugar planters upon the sugar coast in louisiana had ascertained that as it was usually necessary to employ about twice the amount of labor during the boiling season that was required during the season of raising they could by excessive driving day and night during the boiling season accomplish the whole labor with one set of hands by pursuing this plan they could afford to sacrifice a set of hands once in seven years he further stated that this horrible system was now practiced to a considerable extent the correctness of this statement was substantially admitted by the slaveholders then on board the following testimony of rev dr channing of boston who resided some time in virginia shows that the overworking of slaves to such an extent as to abridge life and cause a decrease of population is not confined to the far south and southwest i heard of an estate managed by an individual who was considered as singularly successful and who was able to govern the slaves without the use of the whip i was anxious to see him and trusted that some discovery had been made favorable to humanity i asked him how he was able to dispense with corporal punishment 
he replied to me with a very determined look the slaves know that the work must be done and that it is better to do it without punishment than with it in other words the certainty and dread of chastisement were so impressed on them that they never incurred it i then found that the slaves on this well-managed estate decreased in number i asked the cause he replied with perfect frankness and ease the gang is not large enough for the estate in other words they were not equal to the work of the plantation and yet were made to do it though with the certainty of abridging life on this plantation the huts were uncommonly convenient there was an unusual air of neatness a superficial observer would have called the slaves happy yet they were living under a severe subduing discipline and were overworked to a degree that shortened life this is channing on slavery page one sixty two first edition a friend of the writer the rev mr barrows now officiating as teacher of hebrew in andover theological seminary stated the following in conversation with her that while at new orleans some time since he was invited by a planter to visit his estate as he considered it to be a model one he found good dwellings for the slaves abundant provision distributed to them all cruel punishments superseded by rational and reasonable ones and half a day every week allowed to the negroes to cultivate their own grounds provision was also made for their moral and religious instruction mr barrows then asked the planter do you consider your estate a fair specimen the gentleman replied there are two systems pursued among us one is to make all we can out of a negro in a few years and then supply his place with another and the other is to treat him as i do my neighbor on the next plantation pursues the opposite system his boys are worked hard and scantily fed and i have had them come to me and get down on their knees to beg me to buy them mr barrow says he subsequently passed by this plantation and that the woe-struck dejected aspect of its laborers fully confirmed the account he also says that the gentleman who managed so benevolently told him i do not make much money out of my slaves it will be easy to show that such is the nature of slavery and the temptations of masters that such well-regulated plantations are and must be infinitely in the minority and exceptional cases the rev charles c jones a man of the finest feelings of humanity and for many years an assiduous laborer for the benefit of the slave himself the owner of a plantation and qualified therefore to judge both by experience and observation says after speaking of the great improvidence of the negroes engendered by slavery quote, and indeed once for all i will here say that the wastes of the system are so great as well as the fluctuation in prices of the staple articles for market that it is difficult nay impossible to indulge in large expenditures on plantations and make them savingly profitable religious instruction page 116 if even the religious and benevolent master feels the difficulty of uniting any great consideration for the comfort of the slave with prudence and economy how readily must the moral question be solved by minds of the coarser style of thought which we have supposed in legree quoting legree i used to when i first begun have considerable trouble fussing with em and trying to make em hold out 
doctoring on em up when they's sick and giving on em clothes and blankets and what not trying to keep em all sort of decent and comfortable lord twain't no sort of use i lost money on em and twas heaps of trouble now you see i just put em straight through sick or well when one nigger's dead i buy another and i find it comes cheaper and easier every way added to this the peculiar mode of labor on the sugar plantation is such that the master at a certain season of the year must overwork his slaves unless he is willing to incur great pecuniary loss in that very gracefully written apology for slavery professor ingraham's travels in the southwest the following description of sugar-making is given we quote from him in preference to anyone else because he speaks as an apologist and describes the thing with the grace of a mr skimpole quote, when the grinding has once commenced there is no cessation of labor till it is completed from beginning to end a busy and cheerful scene continues the negroes whose sore task does not divide the sunday from the week work from eighteen to twenty hours and make the night joint labourer with the day though to lighten the burden as much as possible the gang is divided into two batches one taking the first and the other the last part of the night and notwithstanding this continued labour the negroes improve in appearance and appear fat and flourishing they drink freely of cane juice and the sickly among them revive and become robust and healthy after the grinding is finished the negroes have several holidays when they are quite at liberty to dance and frolic as much as they please and the cane song which is improvised by one of the gang the rest all joining in a prolonged and unintelligible chorus now breaks night and day upon the ear in notes most musical most melancholy End quote the above is inserted as a specimen of the facility with which the most horrible facts may be told in the genteelest phrase in a work entitled travels in louisiana in eighteen o two is the following extract c wells slavery as it is page one thirty four from which it appears that this cheerful process of laboring night and day lasts three months Quote, at the rolling of sugars an interval of from two to three months they the slaves in louisiana work both night and day abridged of their sleep they scarcely retire to rest during the whole period now let any one learn the private history of seven hundred blacks men and women compelled to work day and night under the lash of a driver for a period of three months possibly if the gentleman who wrote this account were employed with his wife and family in this cheerful scene of labor if he saw the woman that he loved the daughter who was dear to him as his own soul forced on in the general gang in this toil which does not divide the sabbath from the week and makes the night joint laborer with the day possibly if he saw all this he might have another opinion of its cheerfulness and it might be an eminently salutary thing if every apologist for slavery were to enjoy some such privilege for a season particularly as mr ingraham is careful to tell us that its effect upon the general health is so excellent that the negroes improve in appearance and appear fat and flourishing and that the sickly among them revive and become robust and healthy 
one would think it a surprising fact if working slaves night and day and giving them cane juice to drink really produces such salutary results that the practice should not be continued the whole year round though perhaps in this case the negroes would become so fat as to be unable to labor possibly it is because this healthful process is not longer continued that the agricultural societies of louisiana are obliged to set down an annual loss of slaves on sugar plantations to the amount of two and a half per cent this ought to be looked into by philanthropists perhaps working them all night for six months instead of three might remedy the evil but this periodical pressure is not confined to the making of sugar there is also a press in the cotton season as any one can observe by reading the southern newspapers at a certain season of the year the whole interest of the community is engaged in gathering in the cotton crop concerning this mr weld says slavery as it is page thirty four in the cotton and sugar region there is a fearful amount of desperate gambling in which though money is the ostensible stake and forfeit human life is the real one the length to which this rivalry is carried at the south and southwest the multitude of planters who engage in it and the recklessness of human life exhibited in driving the murderous game to its issue cannot well be imagined by one who has not lived in the midst of it desire of gain is only one of the motives that stimulates them the eclat of having made the largest crop with a given number of hands is also a powerful stimulant the southern newspapers at the crop season chronicle carefully the cotton brag and the crack cotton picking and unparalleled driving etc even the editors of professedly religious papers cheer on the melee and sing the triumphs of the victor among these we recollect the celebrated rev j n maffitt recently editor of a religious paper at natchez mississippi in which he took care to assign a prominent place and capitals on the cotton brag as a specimen of recent date of this kind of affair we subjoin the following from the fairfield herald winsboro south carolina november fourth eighteen fifty two article entitled cotton picking we find in many of our southern and western exchanges notices of the amount of cotton picked by hands and the quantity by each hand and as we have received a similar account which we have not seen excelled so far as regards the quantity picked by one hand we with pleasure furnish the statement with the remark that it is from a citizen of this district overseeing for major h w parr broad river october twelfth eighteen fifty two mr's editors by way of contributing something to your variety provided it meets your approbation i send you the return of a day's picking of cotton not by picked hands but the fag end of a set of hands on one plantation the able-bodied hands having been drawn out for other purposes now for the result of a day's picking from sun up until sundown by twenty-two hands women boys and two men four thousand eight hundred and eighty pounds of clean picked cotton from the stock the highest three hundred and fifty pounds by several the lowest one hundred and fifteen pounds one of the number has picked in the last seven and a half days sunday excepted eleven hours each day nineteen hundred pounds clean cotton 
when any of my agricultural friends beat this in the same time and during sunshine i will try again james stewart it seems that this agriculturist professes to have accomplished all these extraordinary results with what he very cleverly terms the fag end of a set of hands and the more to exalt his glory in the matter he distinctly informs the public that there were no able-bodied hands employed that this whole triumphant result was worked out of women and children and two disabled men in other words he boasts that out of women and children and the feeble and the sickly he has extracted four thousand eight hundred and eighty pounds of clean picked cotton in a day and that one of these same hands has been made to pick nineteen hundred pounds of clean cotton in a week and adds complacently that when any of his agricultural friends beat this in the same time and during sunshine he will try again will any of our readers now consider the forcing up of the hands on legree's plantation an exaggeration yet see how complacently this account is quoted by the editor as a most praiseworthy and laudable thing quote, behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields which is of you kept back by fraud crieth and the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the lord of sabbath that the representations of the style of dwelling-house modes of housekeeping and in short the features of life generally as described on legree's plantation are not wild and fabulous drafts on the imagination or exaggerated pictures of exceptional cases there is the most abundant testimony before the world and has been for a long number of years let the reader weigh the following testimony with regard to the dwellings of the negroes which has been for some years before the world in the work of mr weld it shows the state of things in this respect at least up to the year eighteen thirty eight mr stephen e maltby inspector of provisions scannatales new york who has lived in alabama quote, the huts where the slaves slept generally contained but one apartment and that without a floor end quote mr george a avery elder of the fourth presbyterian church rochester new york who lived four years in virginia quote, amongst all the negro cabins which i saw in virginia i cannot call one to mind in which there was any other floor than the earth anything that a northern laborer or mechanic white or colored would call a bed nor a solitary petition to separate the sexes end quote william ladd esq minot maine president of the american peace society formerly a slaveholder in florida quote, the dwellings of the slaves were palmetto huts built by themselves of stakes and poles thatched with the palmetto leaf the door when they had any was generally of the same materials sometimes boards found on the beach they had no floors no separate apartments except the guinea negroes had sometimes a small enclosure for their god houses these huts the slaves built themselves after task and on sundays rev joseph m sad pastor presbyterian church castile green county new york who lived in missouri five years previous to eighteen thirty seven quote, the slaves live generally in miserable huts which are without floors and have a single apartment only where both sexes are herded promiscuously together End quote. 
mr george w westgate member of the congregational church in quincy illinois who has spent a number of years in slave states quote, on old plantations the negro quarters are of frame and clapboards seldom affording a comfortable shelter from wind or rain their size varies from eight by ten to ten by twelve feet and six or eight feet in height sometimes there is a hole cut for a window but i never saw a sash or a glass in any in the new country and in the woods the quarters are generally built of logs of similar dimensions mr cornelius johnson a member of a christian church in farmington ohio lived in mississippi in eighteen thirty seven thirty eight quote their houses were commonly built of logs sometimes they were framed often they had no floor some of them have two apartments commonly but one each of those apartments contained a family sometimes these families consisted of a man and his wife and children while in other instances persons of both sexes were thrown together without any regard to family relationship the western medical reformer in an article on the cachexia africana by a kentucky physician thus speaks of the huts of the slaves Quote, they are crowded together in a small hut and sometimes having an imperfect and sometimes no floor and seldom raised from the ground ill ventilated and surrounded with filth mr william leftwich a native of virginia but has resided most of his life in madison county alabama Quote, the dwellings of the slaves are log huts from ten to twelve feet square often without windows doors or floors they have neither chairs table or bedstead reuben l macy of hudson new york a member of the religious society of friends he lived in south carolina in eighteen eighteen through nineteen Quote, the houses for the field slaves were about fourteen feet square built in the coarsest manner with one room without any chimney or flooring with a hole in the roof to let the smoke out mr lemuel sappington of lancaster pennsylvania a native of maryland formerly a slaveholder quote, the descriptions generally given of negro quarters are correct the quarters are without floors and not sufficient to keep off the inclemency of the weather they are uncomfortable both in summer and winter End quote. rev john rankin a native of tennessee quote, when they return to their miserable huts at night they find not there the means of comfortable rest but on the cold ground they must lie without covering and shiver while they slumber philemon bliss esq illyria ohio who lived in florida in eighteen thirty five quote, the dwellings of the slaves are usually small open log huts with but one apartment and very generally without floors these quotes are from mr weld's slavery as it is page forty three the rev c c jones to whom we have already alluded when taking a survey of the condition of the negroes considered as a field for missionary effort takes into account all the conditions of their external life he speaks of a part of georgia where as much attention has been paid to the comfort of the negro as in any part of the united states he gives the following picture quote, 
their general mode of living is coarse and vulgar many negro houses are small low to the ground blackened with smoke often with dirt floors and the furniture of the plainest kind on some estates the houses are framed weatherboarded neatly whitewashed and made sufficiently large and comfortable in every respect the improvement in the size material and finish of negro homes is extending occasionally they may be found constructed of tabby or brick this quote from religious instruction of the negroes page one sixteen now admitting what mr jones says to wit that improvements with regard to the accommodation of the negroes are continually making among enlightened and christian people still if we take into account how many people there are who are neither enlightened nor christian how unproductive of any benefit to the master all these improvements are and how entirely therefore they must be the result either of native generosity or of christian sentiment the reader may fairly conclude that such improvements are the exception rather than the rule a friend of the writer travelling in georgia during the last month thus writes quote, upon the long line of rice and cotton plantations extending along the railroad from savannah to this city the negro quarters contain scarcely a single hut which a northern farmer would deem fit shelter for his cattle they are all built of poles with the ends so slightly notched that they are almost as open as children's cob-houses which they very much resemble without a single glazed window and with only one mud chimney to each cluster of from four to eight cabins and yet our fellow-travellers were quietly expatiating upon the negro's strange inability to endure cold weather let this modern picture be compared with the account given by the rev horace moulton who spent five years in georgia between eighteen seventeen and eighteen twenty four and it will be seen in that state at least there is some resemblance between the more remote and more recent Quote, the huts of the slaves are mostly of the poorest kind they are not as good as those temporary shanties which are thrown up beside the railroads they are erected with posts and crotches but with little or no framework about them they have no stoves or chimneys some of them have something like a fireplace at one end and a board or two off at that side or on the roof to let off the smoke others have nothing like a fireplace in them in these the fire is sometimes made in the middle of the hut these buildings have but one apartment in them the places where they pass in and out serve both for doors and windows the sides and roofs are covered with coarse and in many instances with refuse boards in warm weather especially in the spring the slaves keep up a smoke or fire and smoke all night to drive away the gnats and mosquitoes which are very troublesome in all the low country of the south so much so that the whites sleep under frames with nets over them knit so fine that the mosquitoes cannot fly through them from slavery as it is page nineteen the same mr moulton gives the following account of the food of the slaves and the mode of procedure on the plantation on which he was engaged it may be here mentioned that at the time he was at the south he was engaged in certain business relations which caused him frequently to visit different plantations and to have under his control many of the slaves his opportunities for observation therefore were quite intimate 
there is a homely matter-of-fact distinctness in the style that forbids the idea of its being a fancy sketch Quote, it was a general custom wherever i have been for the master to give each of his slaves male and female one peck of corn per week for their food this at fifty cents per bushel which was all it was worth when i was there would amount to twelve and a half cents per week for board per head it cost me upon an average when at the south one dollar per day for board the price of fourteen bushels of corn per week this would make my board equal an amount to the board of forty-six slaves this is all that good or bad masters allow their slaves round about savannah on the plantations one peck of gourd seed corn is to be measured out to each slave once every week one man with whom i labored however being desirous to get all the work out of his hands he could before i left about fifty in number bought for them every week or twice a week a beef's head from market with this they made a soup in a large iron kettle around which the hands came at meal-time and dipping out the soup would mix it with their hominy and eat it as though it were a feast this man permitted his slaves to eat twice a day while i was doing a job for him he promised me a beaver hat and as good a suit of clothes as could be bought in the city if i would accomplish so much for him before i returned to the north giving me the entire control over his slaves thus you may see the temptations overseers sometimes have to get all the work they can out of the poor slaves the above is an exception to the general rule of feeding for in all other places where i worked and visited the slaves had nothing from their masters but the corn or its equivalent in potatoes or rice and to this they were not permitted to come but once a day the custom was to blow the horn early in the morning as a signal for the hands to rise and go to work when commenced they continue work until about eleven o'clock a m when at the signal all hands left off and went into their huts made their fires made their corn meal into hominy or cake ate it and went to work again at the signal of the horn and worked until night or until their tasks were done some cooked their breakfast in the field while at work each slave must grind his own corn in a hand mill after he has done his work at night there is generally one hand mill on every plantation for the use of the slaves some of the planters have no corn others often get out the substitute for it is the equivalent of one peck of corn either in rice or sweet potatoes neither of which is as good for the slaves as corn they complain more of being faint when fed on rice or potatoes than when fed on corn i was with one man a few weeks who gave me his hands to do a job of work and to save time one cooked for all the rest the following course was taken two crotched sticks were driven down at one end of the yard and a small pole being laid on the crotches they swung a large iron kettle on the middle of the pole then made up a fire under the kettle and boiled the hominy when ready the hands were called around this kettle with their wooden plates and spoons they dipped out and ate standing around the kettle or sitting upon the ground as best suited their convenience when they had potatoes they took them out with their hands and ate them from slavery as it is page eighteen thomas clay esq a slaveholder of georgia and a most benevolent man and who interested himself very successfully in endeavoring to promote the improvement of the negroes 
in his address before the georgia presbytery eighteen thirty three says of their food the quantity allowed by custom is a peck of corn a week the maryland journal and baltimore advertiser may thirtieth seventeen eighty eight says a single peck of corn or the same measure of rice is the ordinary provision for a hard-working slave to which a small quantity of meat is occasionally though rarely added captain william ladd of minnow maine formerly a slaveholder in florida says the usual allowance of food was a quart of corn a day to a full task hand with a modicum of salt kind masters allowed a peck of corn a week the law of north carolina provides that the master shall give his slave a quart of corn a day which is less than a peck a week by one quart haywood's manual five twenty five slavery as it is page twenty nine the master therefore who gave a peck a week would feel that he was going beyond the law and giving a court for generosity this condition of things will appear far more probable in the section of the country where the scene of the story is laid it is in the southwestern states where no provision is raised on the plantations but the supply for the slaves is all purchased from the more northern states let the reader now imagine the various temptations which might occur to retrench the allowance of the slaves under these circumstances scarcity of money financial embarrassment high price of provisions and various causes of the kind bring a great influence upon the master or overseer at the time when it was discussed whether the state of missouri should be admitted as a slave state the measure like all measures for the advancement of the horrible system was advocated on the good old plea of humanity to the negroes thus mr alexander smith in his speech on the slavery question january twenty first eighteen twenty says by confining the slaves to the southern states where crops are raised for exportation and bread and meat are purchased you doom them to scarcity and hunger it is proposed to him in the blacks where they are ill-fed this from slavery as it is page twenty eight this is a simple recognition of the state of things we have adverted to to the same purport mr asa a stone a theological student who resided near natchez mississippi in eighteen thirty four thirty five says on almost every plantation the hands suffer more or less from hunger at some seasons of almost every year there is always a good deal of suffering from hunger on many plantations and particularly in louisiana the slaves are in a condition of almost utter famishment during the great portion of the year Ibid. mr tobias Bodineau, st almonds ohio a member of the methodist church who for some years was a navigator on the mississippi says the slaves down the mississippi are half starved the boats when they stop at night are constantly boarded by slaves begging for something to eat Ibid. on the whole while it is freely and cheerfully admitted that many individuals have made most commendable advances in regard to the provision for the physical comfort of the slave still it is to be feared that the picture of the accommodations on legree's plantation has as yet too many counterparts lest however the author should be suspected of keeping back anything which might serve to throw light on the subject she will insert in full the following incidents on the other side from the pen of the accomplished professor ingraham 
how far these may be regarded as exceptional cases or as pictures of the general mode of providing for slaves may safely be left to the good sense of the reader the professor's anecdotes are as follows what can you do with so much tobacco said a gentleman who related the circumstance to me on hearing a planter whom he was visiting give an order to his teamster to bring two hogsheads of tobacco out to the estate from the landing i purchase it for my negroes it is a harmless indulgence which it gives me pleasure to afford them why are you at the trouble and expense of having high post bedsteads for your negroes said a gentleman from the north while walking through the handsome quarters or village for the slaves then in progress on a plantation near natchez addressing the proprietor to suspend their bars from that they may not be troubled with mosquitoes master me would like if you please a little bit gallery front my house for what peter cause master the sun too hot an odd reason for a negro to give that side and when he rain we no able to keep the door open well well when a carpenter gets a little leisure you shall have one a few weeks after i was at the plantation and riding past the quarters one sabbath morning beheld peter his wife and children with his old father all sunning themselves in the new gallery missus you promised me a christmas gift well jane there is a new calico frock for you it wery pretty missus said jane eyeing it at a distance without touching it but me prefer muslin if you please muslin de fashion dis christmas very well jane call to-morrow and you shall have a muslin the writer would not think of controverting the truth of these anecdotes any probable amount of high post bedsteads and mosquito bars of tobacco distributed as gratuity and verandas constructed by leisurely carpenters for the sunning of fastidious negroes may be conceded and they do in no whit impair the truth of the other facts when the reader remembers that the gang of some opulent owners amounts to from five to seven hundred working hands besides children he can judge how extensively these accommodations are likely to be provided let them be safely thrown into the account for what they are worth at all events it is pleasing to end off so disagreeable a chapter with some more agreeable images this ends part one chapter ten Legree.